0: Welcome back to the Outcomes Rocket. Saul Marquez here, and today I have the privilege of reintroducing Dr. Amy Baxter. Uh, Dr. Amy Baxter is the founder and CEO of Pain Care Labs, founded in 2006 with a mission to eliminate unnecessary pain. She invented and patented VibraCool vibrational cryotherapy to treat tendinopathies and decrease opioid use. And she, she's her, her interview on the podcast was extraordinary. If you haven't listened to it, go to outcomesrocket.health, type in Amy Baxter, or type in Pain Care Labs, and you'll find the episode there. Just extraordinary contributor to healthcare, one of the top women in tech to watch as well. Um, also known for turning down Mark Cuban <laughs> on Shark Tank. Uh, pretty fun fact there. Um, but today, we're going to be discussing... COVID 19. We're going to be discussing uh, just myths, uh, controversies, and what does the future look like. And so uh, uh, Amy's also a, a, a licensed physician, ER physician. And so uh, with her perspective, I, I, I really hope to. To nail down some of those things that, that may still be uh, questions in our mind. And I uh, hope you enjoyed today's episode. So uh, Amy, thanks so much for, for joining me today.
1: Oh, Saul, thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Absolutely. So, so let's chat COVID-19. You know, what, what are some of the myths out there that you want to help us bust and you know, let, let, guide us through that?
1: Sure. Well, I think the scariest myth was one that was introduced to me by my bank teller. I put on a mask, she had on a mask, and we've known each other for years. And she said Mm -hmm. confidentially, is this really a thing? Because I've got a friend in Brooklyn who says she drives by the hospitals and no one's there. Is this really happening? Mm -hmm. So the, the biggest myth is that COVID is not a serious disease, that it's the same as flu. A study this week showed that there actually are 21 times more fatalities from COVID in New York than there were from flu. So the biggest myth is, is this going away? And is this really a thing? And the answer is nope. And yep. Yeah.
0: Hmm. hmm. Yeah, no, I, I definitely appreciate that. And it's real, you know, and a lot of us in, in the healthcare space uh, uh, definitely feel it, but there might be that doubt. And, and so as we, as we think about it, you know, uh, wh- what, what are some of the questions you're getting and seeing that, that you feel the listeners could benefit from knowing around, the, around this virus?
1: Sure. Well, I think that the interesting things are how this virus is different from other viruses. And some of those attributes we could leverage for treatments and for care, and some of them make it really scary because we don't have a way to treat it. One of the papers I read yesterday said, this virus is unlike any other. And I think it's true, this pathogen is doing things that other viruses haven't. So first of all, the biggest difference is in infectivity by age. Usually we have what we call a U or a V shape. Where at the very young ages, we have a lot of infections and morbidity, which means bad things happening. And at the old ages, we have a lot of morbidity and mortality. And we don't see that. This one is very much a, a, a long J. It's very, very low. At the young ages, it goes way up at the top. Hmm. Other thing that's strange about this is how long it takes to become infective and how precipitous the drop is when people have a problem. So I think that you probably know that from the time of infection until you show symptoms can be five to seven days. So that incubation is very long. The scary part is that 44% of infections come during that asymptomatic phase. So it's very easy to spread without knowing you have it, which makes it hard to track, hard to trace, and hard to know who to test
0: yeah it's uh it's different and and so how about the ideas of like where it came from and and you know why any any thoughts around that
1: sure well it turns out that bats are natural reservoirs of coronaviruses so for example ebola was initially in a bat in a cave that a young boy outside the incident town was playing with and that's where that particular virus came from as habitats change and as the climate changes bats go out of their normal territories and they happen to have coronaviruses as a very common infection it doesn't kill them so it can be transmitted directly to humans now the certainly the time that this virus started was in wuhan and was from a bat but it looking at the strains and the genetic typing of it, it seems to be mutating fairly slowly and it makes it fairly easy to see when it started, where it came from. So the wet market in China is still the most likely place it came from, but no matter what, this is the kind of virus that comes from bats directly to humans.
0: Hmm. Wow. You know, I'd, I'd heard that and I wasn't sure if it was true or not. I'm like, is it, is it really from bats? I mean, and then, I also hear people saying it came from a lab somewhere.
1: Yeah, it's a chicken egg thing or a, a, a bat lab thing. Yeah, there was a, there is a lab in Wuhan because of the risk of coronaviruses. It had been studying bats heavily since SARS and MERS. So both SARS and MERS are coronaviruses and there had been increased studying of bats in that lab, but it's, because they're dangerous and because they're a risk not because they're trying to create coronaviruses or create infections it's the fact that somebody was looking at it and researching it because it was dangerous not that it became dangerous because someone was researching it
0: fascinating fascinating i didn't know that that connection thank you for that so as we as we explore this j-shaped curve uh, you know i'm curious right i mean i've got a 3 year old and and i've got you know Aging parents. Well, tell me more about that, and, and particular things that you'd recommend for safety, and and uh, you know just things that we need to keep on our mind.
1: Sure. Well, I have a couple of theories about why the J, J-shaped curve is. Typically, the U-shaped curve has to do with immunogenicity. So, mm-hmm. how well your immune system protects you. And young people don't have very well developed immune systems, so they tend to be more vulnerable to respiratory diseases. And older people also have decreased immune systems. Mm -hmm. So the the very heavy incidence on people who are over 65, which seems to be where the cutoff is to have a dramatic increase in risk, Mm -hmm. that probably isn't due to decreased immunity. One of the theories is that it's due to increased immunity. That there, was, there were two coronaviruses, coronavirus alpha and beta, cleverly named, that were circulating in the late 50s and identified in the 60s. And so it may be that those people who were alive in the 50s and 60s, before it kind of petered out, have some immunity that was developed at that point, which causes an excessive immune response in the older patients. Now the other possibilities are this virus doesn't seem to enter the body and then get into the bloodstream and spread everywhere. It seems more like this virus comes into the body and marches a bit at a time, almost as if the, the troops come in and they set up fortifications and it's like World War II. And so the battalions multiply and spread a little at a time. So with that being the case, the interesting thing is that a paper in Nature last week determined that the tissues that this virus is attaching to before the lipid fatty layer of the virus fuses with the cell, they're in the nose. So there's something called an ACE2 receptor that is where the little spiky protein pops onto and holds on. And there are ACE2 receptors all over the body, but the ones that we're interested in are the nose. And children don't have big noses. They also don't have sinuses. You don't get a full set of sinuses until you're a teenager.
0: Hmm. Interesting. So because of that, maybe that's why they, they're they less less at risk to, to get this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. If what we're talking about is something called viral load, which is literally how many virus particles you have, um, that is going to be difficult to accumulate in a small child. One of the interesting things I found out was that the nasal cavity size is dramatically increased over the age of 70, and it's much oh, wow. larger in males.
0: Oh, is that right? Huh?
1: Yeah, certainly we've seen that males tend to be more at risk of fatalities, more at risk of catching the virus than females do. The ratio is about five to three. Some studies find about 60% of males are the ones who are affected and die, and only 40% females.
0: Um. So once somebody gets it, Amy, can they be reinfected?
1: That's an interesting question. I don't think we know yet. Most coronavirus, the the answer is probably no. The most coronaviruses have immunity from about four months to a couple years. So this is why circulating colds, you can catch over and over. You get a little immune, but it doesn't last that long. Mm. So Mm. there's a paper just this morning that I haven't read that said that those people that tested negative and then tested positive again, it was almost definitely mathematically because the tests weren't sensitive enough. But time will tell on that one, but most likely there will be some protection for some period of time.
0: Fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it's like the flu, right? So so I guess if you think of COVID-19 like the flu, is it here to stay?
1: Well, first of all, the the flu is a really different virus and so while the flu does have parts of it that change on the outside every year, so it's almost like the reason we get a vaccine is almost like you have a uh the vaccine is a criminal and every year, or the virus is a criminal, and every year the virus puts on a different mask. So mm-hmm. it's the same criminal, but but you have to make your vaccine recognize the new face every year.
0: Okay, that's a good analogy. I like thank that.
1: Thank you, thank you, <laughs> off, the, off the top of my head. Um, coronavirus, yeah, so I, I think it's a, it's a huge question about coronavirus. Certainly, we could stop it and contain it, just as they've done in New Zealand. But the only way to do that is to maintain quarantines for anyone coming into a new area. If you're not an island and people can travel easily back and forth, I don't think there's a way to get rid of it because mm-hmm. it's too stealthy. It takes too long before you show symptoms. And the, the big problem is that you can transmit it without having any idea that you have it and it can be very subtle. So I think that our best hope, um, vaccines are gonna take at least 18 months. There are some good news that came out from Oxford yesterday that they have a vaccine that they're now testing in rhesus macaws, which are apparently the closest uh, kin to humans in terms of how you respond to vaccines, but they're going to be a while and one of the risks of vaccines in humans is that, again, you're giving your body a little bit of a a hint of what to go after so that it can attack the virus. But with respiratory viruses and with the fact that the immune system seems to be such a part of what causes problems with this, the the vaccine itself may actually cause your immune system to overreact when it's exposed to the virus. This has happened before with uh, respiratory syncytial virus. It's one of the reasons why it's been hard to get a dengue virus vaccine. So the risk is that even if we can teach the body to recognize the virus, it's just going to make the immune system go crazy.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and 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 so it's a it's it's a different animal altogether. Uh, how about along the lines of? I mean, we've covered transmission. We've covered diagnosis and testing uh
1: we could talk about risk what's that we could talk about risk
0: let's talk about risk (laughs)
1: So, so as as different communities open up their bars and i'm in georgia so opening up the tattoo parlors and the hair salons and bowling alleys and other essential places People are saying, yes, we're opening this, but we want to protect those who are vulnerable. The problem is this virus is so new that governments don't know how to tell people whether they're vulnerable or not. So we all know that people over age 65 are more vulnerable, but someone asked me yesterday, what about 50? Well, there are three different large studies that have come out in the last two weeks that look at large numbers of people in different communities to show what the risk factors are. I think the most interesting novel discovery is that obesity is a very highly correlated risk factor, regardless of age. So why would this be? Well, it turns out that obesity actually upregulates and stimulates these ACE2 receptors. So people talk about ACE2 uh, in hypertension and ACE2 blockers, which you should keep taking if you're on it. But ACE2 receptors, which is where the virus hooks on, are highly upregulated by obesity. So the interesting thing about comparing our results and other countries' results is that, as you probably know, the United States is 36 to 38% of our population with obesity. And that is way higher than any of the Southeast Asian countries. China yeah. has 4%. The United Kingdom has 26%. So so looking at what factors these different countries come up with in terms of who is at risk and who has morbidity really depends on what their underlying level of obesity is because it's so highly correlated. I think Mm -hmm. the best connection we can make is to a fantastic study with 49,000 people that is submitted but not yet peer-reviewed, but the methodology was sound, and they have about a 32% incidence of uh, or prevalence of uh, obesity in Mexico. So what they found that was really important is that diabetes and obesity and age yet less than 40 Mm -hmm. is a risk factor. They made a a one to seven risk factor chart. And so it was four points, which put people all by itself in the moderate risk category of dying from Mm -hmm. COVID. So there are people who are under 40 who are at risk, and it's if you have type 2 diabetes, and you're obese. The other interesting things they found were that immunosuppression, obesity by itself, age greater than 65, kidney disease, and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, but not asthma. All of those were about equal levels of risk. And diabetes by itself without obesity was about half the risk of those. So so those risk categories were pretty interesting. Um, The difference in what we have found in our data from New York and in the UK Mm -hmm. is that the top risk factors in both the UK and China, cardiovascular disease was the biggest comorbidity, diabetes was the second, and respiratory problems were the third. But in the US, hypertension was the number one comorbidity in New York, and the second was obesity, and the third was diabetes so I think that looking at that is important because what it means is if you are between 50 and 65 all of those groups are probably in about the same risk category and the more the percent in that age group that died was about 1.6 percent so much higher than with younger people but still nothing like the 14.8 percent of people that were over 80 that died in China. So the, the 65 to 80 range is certainly at risk, but young people younger than 65 who have hypertension, who are obese, or who have diabetes, those are really the risk factors we need to be protecting.
0: Wow. Uh, that's uh, that's really interesting. So really, it's not an age thing. It's the things that accompany age that oftentimes are present in younger people. But obesity is a big thing. Diabetes is a big thing. Hypertension. And uh, in, uh, in, in, in so uh, fascinating to, to think about this. Um, what are your thoughts about, look, I, so, so like right now, Amy, I have um, my wife's in the medical field. I'm in healthcare. Um, and so, you know, we're kind of both busy Thinking about taking my son back to school uh, to the to the um, to the, his his daycare school. He's three years old. So we like we don't want to do it unless we have to, and sometimes we do. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, are we really kind of putting ourselves out there?
1: You know, honestly, I was asked this question about sleepaway camp by someone on my Buzzy Helps Facebook Live that I'm doing yeah. on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Mm-hmm. And I would let my kids go to sleepaway camp. The, the issues are for people in the house who have immunosuppression or have all the other risk factors that I have mentioned yeah. and kids just don't have those. So unless the child has something that puts them at risk, I think it's okay to go back to school. I think it's okay to go back to day camp for those guys. This really isn't any more risky than flu. And could something bad happen? Sure, but we're talking 100,000, very, yeah. very low risk. The idea that I am most excited about is combining some of this information we have about we know that it enters through the nose. We know that older people have bigger noses. We know that it takes a long time for the virus to keep making itself. A couple other things we know are that the virus in the nose can't reproduce unless the fatty layer confused with the fatty layer of the cells, and it only does that in acidic pH, so is a that little right? bit lower pH than normal. Well, huh. it turns out that, for example, African Americans who are a risk factor in themselves, and we don't know why, but their acidity in their nose averages 6.4 instead of whites, which is 6.8, And one idea is to alkalinize the nasal tissues, to use a little baking soda and a nasal rinse to make it more alkaline, so that if the virus gets in, it can't fuse. The other thing we know is that betadine, which is a pre-surgical antimicrobial. So if you've ever seen that that, uh, orangey stuff that they wipe on before you have a surgery, Mm -hmm. so that's betadine. Mm -hmm. And it happens to be exquisitely good at killing Coronaviruses and specifically SARS-CoV-2. So really? yes, it is exquisitely good at that. Um, so the the thing is, people have been using betadine rinses in the nose for about the last five, 10 years before surgery, to get rid of viral load in patients who've got chronic sinusitis. The National Health Service actually has a recipe for a nasal rinse that has a half a teaspoon of betadine and a salt and baking soda. Huh. So, so we are looking at the concept of finding patients who are positive for coronavirus and then randomizing them to do either what they would normally do or to do nasal rinses twice a day with betadine and with a little bit of baking soda in the saline water. So there's another factor about this. Um, I don't know if you've ever done a nasal rinse before. I have not. I <laughs> it, haven't. It, woo! Uh, did you, it's something did, to get used to.
0: Did you try it?
1: Uh, I did try it. I tried it actually on my uh, on my YouTube channel, and uh, and that was copied from the the 3 p.m. things on my, my the Buzzy Helps Facebook post.
0: Hey, so let's let's pause for a second there, because that sounds really interesting. So you do something on on a On a Facebook live and you share stuff about corona, like tell me because that would be an interesting resource to share with the listeners too uh, what What do you do with that? Let's sure. just kind of well, take a started, break to talk about that because I'm not sure that I know about that
1: uh, It started about well really when coronavirus started. We make devices that decrease pain, and our primary audiences are needle pain, so people who have to give themselves injections at home for their arthritis or Crohn's disease, but also for post-op and for people who are on opioids that want to use something else. Mm -hmm. So because one of the ways to deal with pain is to go to your massage therapist or to go to a physical therapist, we started giving people non-pharmacologic solutions they could do at home in a broadcast at 3 p.m. on Buzzy Help's Facebook channel. Oh, okay. B-U-Z-Z-Y-F-A-C-E-B-O-O-K. Well, people started asking me more and more questions about coronavirus. And I'm an NIH researcher. Once you know how to research one thing, and once you know how to dig into PubMed, which is where the published studies are, it becomes pretty easy to digest and to give answers. So, over time, I kept giving solutions for pain and fear and focus, but I started talking about all things COVID right off the bat. And now it's come to the place that almost all my questions are about COVID. So, I'm answering questions about masks and about how to, which vitamins you should be taking, which supplements are relevant for coronavirus. And I started thinking about the mysteries of this disease. Why is it that the death rate in Southeast Asia and Vietnam is zero? Why did they have a patient who came in and was in a very populated street and nobody on that street caught the virus? And as I started digging into it, I came to realize that in Southeast Asia, they practice nasal irrigation like we practice toothbrushing.
0: Oh, is that right?
1: Yeah, it's just a normal part of hygiene. And so, so this incredibly low death rate that they have I started wondering, could this be because they're using nasal irrigation? And that was even before the study came out that found that the nose is definitely where COVID is entering. So I started looking at things and I thought, wow, you know, if nasal irrigation is the issue, if the the sinuses are the issue, it would explain the age factor because young kids don't have sinuses and their noses are small. Males have bigger nasal cavities than women. It would explain the... The timing factor, You know, if you do nasal irrigation, you're wiping out those troops every time they try to rebuild. So it gives the body time for the immune system to figure out how to respond without being overwhelmed because it's still only located in the nose. It hasn't marched down to the throat, to the larynx, making that dry cough, and then down to the lungs where it can spread like crazy. Mm. So then I found one of my friends who's uh, a really amazing ear, nose and throat specialist in Cincinnati, which is where I trained. Mm-hmm. He said, well, you know, the National Health Service has been sending around to all of the ENTs this recipe for betadine nasal irrigation. And I told him my theory about the, the alkalinity and what about using baking soda? And he said, yeah, that's fine, but it's been ex- it's been proven that betadine is quickly, Virus it kills the viruses really fast. And so he said, that's probably why they're using betadine is because there's really good data that it doesn't take much to kill it. So and there are a couple other interesting studies. There is a, a chemical formula and I don't know what it is. It's EK123 and they squirted it in mice's nose and the mice, even whether they, they had already been exposed to coronavirus or they had not yet been exposed to coronavirus, they still did not get the disease. So wow. that was so there's something that you can put up your nose that'll stop minute <laughs> if you 're a mouse, if you 're a mouse, so all of these <laughs> things together are you know as i 've been learning them i 'm sharing them on my Facebook live page, and the The hard thing is that in medicine, we are taught to like drugs. we right. are up on drugs and we have multiple choice tests, and we know this disease goes with this drug, so it 's difficult to get physicians who do research to try something like a randomized trial of a saline rinse when it's not what we do in America and it's not a drug.
0: Yeah. And that's the challenge, right? So, yeah, well, the uh, thing. Okay. you know, no, just to, to, to park there for a second. So folks, if you're curious about Dr. Baxter's, uh, Facebook channel, uh, we'll, or her live, uh, weekly feeds, we'll leave a link in the show notes of this podcast, for you to tune into those, they sound really interesting, um, and I guess they're COVID-focused right now. But but the 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 her her focus and her company's focus, which is not what we're talking about today, is pain and and resolving pain without opioids uh, with some of the devices that they offer, um, but also uh, just uh, different uh, things that they have to offer around this area of pain management and and avoiding opioids, but. Um, fascinating stuff here, Amy, let's, let's talk about the future. I mean, you know, what does the future look like? People talk about vaccines, people, you know, say, I don't know, are we ever going to find one or it's close? Let's talk about that.
1: Yeah. The vaccine availability is not going to be around soon enough for us to avoid deaths. Mm -hmm. And regardless of when it shows up, You are still going to have people who can't get it because there's not enough. There are going to be people who are so afraid of needles, they decide to wait, thus reducing our herd immunity. It's gonna be an issue and it's not something that we can rely on. So one thing is masks. We are going to see masks widespread. All of the airlines now are recommending them. Not only recommending, they're requiring. JetBlue started, Delta, America, and the others came on board yesterday. So for homemade masks, there is really nice data looking at what materials are the best at blocking out coronavirus. Mm. And so this research that was done found that pillowcases and cotton blend t-shirts block out between 68 and 70 percent. Now, it's not as much as things like vacuum cleaner bags and a surgical mask blocks out 89 percent. But the nice thing about cotton blend and the pillowcases with the highest thread count you can get are that they're very breathable. So if you're Mm. making a mask at home, those are good materials to use that are not going to be uncomfortable. And I believe that we will be seeing a long time period of requiring masks in tight and enclosed spaces. The reason that masks are important is not just about not sneezing on things and not pushing other things out when you breathe. The problem is that it's now been proven, another study that came out two days ago from from Wuhan, that there are still aerosolized particles of COVID in the air. And so anything that blocks out the aerosolized particles that you're breathing in, is going to protect you from getting exposed. Now, Mm -hmm. based on the other stuff, is mouth breathing better than nose breathing? Um, Probably. But having a mask doesn't just protect other people, as Pence was assuming when he's touring Mayo. It actually is also about protecting yourself. And given the false negatives in testing, given how long it takes for the virus to replicate and to be able to be found, and the fact that you're still infectious during that, for him, it's critically important that he wear a mask because he can still be breathing in particles that are in the air.
0: Mm-hmm. And and so these these aerosolized particles, Amy, are they they do they happen when other people are around, and that's why we have the six feet rule, or are they just out there and floating? <laughs>
1: Well, so the things that they found in the Chinese paper that make a difference are circulating air matters a lot. There was a case of three cases that got a coronavirus in a restaurant because they had the type of air conditioner that just circulates air around, it doesn't filter it.
0: So Uh, if you're in
1: an enclosed area where Mm -hmm. it's circulating around, it absolutely is a risk and wearing a mask absolutely protects you. If you are out jogging and it's not a windy day, you are heavily breathing out particles and they do stick around in the air near for a while. And the distance from a sneeze can be as much as 18 feet. Mm. So the six foot rule is because the coronaviruses on respiratory drops are, have a little trajectory that's gonna go out and then gravity pulls them down within about six feet. But when it's not on a respiratory droplet, when it's in an aerosol, in a spray, it can linger for a while. So, I would jog on a windy day without a mask, but I would not jog on, or ride a bicycle on a still day without a mask to protect myself.
0: Wow, that's interesting. Fascinating stuff. Uh, you know, it, uh, I've gone on a couple of bike rides and I haven't worn my mask. I'll have to feel out the air now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is uh, fascinating stuff, uh, Amy, and and certainly I, I appreciate your your depth of knowledge and and your willingness to share with the with the listeners, uh, folks. We'll will make sure to to include a link to to Dr. Baxter's uh, uh, resources and you know her company inside of the show notes. Just go to outcomesrocket.health type in Amy Baxter in the search bar, and you'll find all of the resources there. Um, Amy, anything that you want to leave us with?
1: Sure, I just want to say, if you are someone in pain, we have reduced the price of our VibraCool devices by 30%, and we have a number of pain partners who make everything from pain creams to cooling creams to hot and cold sources, and All of those pain partners, we're putting the samples in with the VibraCool for free, and we still have some disinfectant that someone donated that we're putting in for free. So that little plug, if you happen to be somebody with chronic pain, I'll put that in there. And, you know, it's going to be fine. We are going to conquer this. We're going to figure it out. And so long as we're transparent about who is at risk and we don't succumb to conspiracy theories and just really listen to the scientists overall and know that the the longer we can stay home and stay safe, the more time it gives this incredible machine that's putting out so much new science every day, a way to prove what can actually help people keep us safe and get us past this.
0: Well, Dr. Baxter, I appreciate your insights and and uh, that that glimmer of hope in in, in all the things that we're experiencing, and so I appreciate that. And, and listeners, uh, again, go to the show notes, and in there, I'll include not only a link to to Dr. Baxter's um, channel, so you could tune in, but also a link to the little kits that she's talking about. If you do have pain or have patients, or you know deal with with populations, employees that have pain. Uh, a great resource with multiple options there to help deal with that, especially now that you can't go to the masseuse or or physical therapist or do those things like acupuncture, right. Uh, That you would otherwise be able to do without COVID amongst us. So um, thank you so much, Amy. This has been fun and uh, definitely look forward to having you on again. I
1: enjoy it every single time. Saul. thanks for having me.